following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, thank you for this wonderful opportunity to worship you in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. I pray for soft and tender hearts as we approach your word, that we might be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. May this time be for your glory and the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Christ's Blueprint for Faithful God-Glorifying Ministry. Christ's Blueprint for Faithful God-Glorifying Ministry. And I would invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1. And I'll be reading verses 28 through 29. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man... And teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Amen to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to take a trip to a third world country and visit with one of my of spiritual heroes, a pastor ministering in one of the toughest communities in his country. And I'll leave the country unnamed. On one particular day, a few of us walked a few minutes from the church to the nearby community carrying Bibles, gospel tracts, food boxes, and some medical supplies, as this was a very poverty-stricken area. And there was a river that ran along where many of these people lived. And this river was the primary source of water for uh, this community. Uh, I remember many things about that particular visit to the nearby community, but none more than what I witnessed as we visited many of these families uh, in their homes, some who were believers. With few exceptions, many of the children and the youth living in some of these homes were suffering from diseases and malnutrition and stunted growth and development, as well as various uh, deformities. And when I inquired from the pastor as to the cause of this epidemic, He told me that the government had determined that many of the effects were due to the polluted river water, which was their primary source of water. They had no choice. It had been confirmed that the water was polluted with many parasites, amoebas, microorganisms, and harmful contaminants. And sadly, for many of these people, partaking of this water was their only choice. And they chose to live with many of the consequences of partaking of it. For many years, they had used this water, and they thought that it was healthy and pure. Um, But it led to permanent damage in many of them, such as diseases and deformities and malnutrition and stunted growth and normal human development. And beloved, as I prepared for this message uh, from Colossians, I kept thinking about the fact that the same damage can be done in the spiritual realm by Christians if we're not careful. We have a heavenly father who has saved us, not just from hell, but he desires that we grow and we mature in Christ. 
Growth and maturity in the Christian life is to be the norm. However, many times we too dangerously drink of worldly polluted thinking and consume worldly philosophies. And in the process, we do spiritual harm to ourselves, oftentimes without even knowing it. These worldly philosophies and ways of thinking can come in the form of human improvement methods, which cleverly disguise themselves as healthy sources that will conform us into the image of Christ. But they are actually counterfeit. And contrary to biblical, Christ-centered spiritual growth and spiritual development. You see, like the Colossian believers, we too can fall prey to humanistic thinking and methods to improve ourselves, to fix what we know is broken in our lives. And instead of looking to Christ and to His Word, we resort to ways of thinking and adopt methods apart from and independent of Christ, His Word, and His people. This is why, beloved, so many of us are suffering from stunted spiritual growth and maturity. We're having a difficult time overcoming prevailing sins in our lives and not becoming more holy like Jesus. However, if we really want to see genuine spiritual growth and maturity take place in our Christian lives, then we must partake of the true living water. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ in and through His Word. Well, Colossae had similar issues. These believers were being influenced by counterfeit ways to grow and mature as Christians. And the church that had been founded by one of Paul's partners, Epaphras, he preached the gospel to these believers according to chapter 1 and verse 7, was suffering and being influenced. And though Paul had never seen them face to face, he wanted to write and encourage these Colossian believers. Because, you see, heresy had begun to creep its ugly head in the church, as reported by Epaphras. A sort of syncretistic religious system had infiltrated this church, and the Colossians were dangerously succumbing to some of these false teachings. So Paul, being the loving shepherd that he is, writes to encourage these believers. And he, as, he, as he unveils the error of this multicolored heresy... He reminds these believers in a glorious way that these heresies have at their root a misunderstanding, are at their root a misunderstanding of the person and the work of Christ. So what does Paul do? He exposes this heresy by showing them Christ and the practical implications for the Christian life when we rightly understand the person and the work of Christ. Mark it. The antidote For our spiritual waywardness and the spiritual waywardness of the Colossian believers is a gazing of the preeminence of the person and the work of the exalted Christ. Amen? So Paul reminds them in chapter 1 of Christ's preeminent person. That Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation in chapter 1, verse 15. In verse 16, he reminds them that Christ is the agent of creation and that all things were created through him and for him. In verse 17, that Christ is eternal and he sustains all things. In verse 18, he reminds them that Christ is the head of the church, which means the authority, the sovereign, supreme ruler of the church. He not only reminds him of the person of Christ, but the preeminence of Christ's redemptive work in chapter 1. That in Christ there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. 
Christ is the one through whom God has reconciled all things to Himself, establishing an indestructible peace that we can never break. And we who are sinners saved by grace can rejoice that in and through Christ, God has reconciled us to Himself in order to present us before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen? What a beautiful truth that is. And then in chapter 2, having reminded the Colossians about the preeminence of Christ's person and work, Paul masterfully connects Christ's person and work to the struggling believers by reminding them of the sufficiency of Christ for their growth and maturity. He tells them that this preeminent Christ alone can complete them. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in Him, that is Christ, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And listen to this, And in Him you have been made complete. In other words, Christ is sufficient. He alone can complete you. He alone can make you whole. He alone can fix you and I. We don't need to look elsewhere. Don't look to counterfeits, beloved, for spiritual growth. Christ can complete you. Amen? He alone can complete you. So Paul's desire here with the Colossians is to refocus and recalibrate their hearts to what is most essential in Christian ministry. Paul was not ignorant of the fact that we are all broken and incomplete people. Paul writes of his sufferings for Christ's sake because he knows that Christ came so that we might be able to be made complete. Amen? He says Christ can complete you. You don't need to be influenced by the latest ism to grow and to mature. The whole point of the letter at, for, uh, to the Colossians is Christ is sufficient. That is the central message of this letter from the Apostle Paul. And then in chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 5, Paul believes in the sufficiency of Christ so much that he even speaks of his own gospel ministry in 124 through 2.5. In this section, we see Paul's heart for ministry for Christ and his people. Paul writes of his suffering for Christ's sake. God gave Paul a ministry, a stewardship in the preaching of his word. And Paul tells us that this ministry of the word centers on the person of Christ. And Paul loves Christ and treasures Christ. Therefore, he labors and strives and struggles to be an instrument by which Christ grows his people. So he speaks of his own ministry. And it is right smack in the middle of this section where Paul speaks of his own gospel ministry that we have chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, where I believe that Paul encapsulates for us four elements of a faithful, God-glorifying ministry. Four elements of a faithful, God-glorying ministry that energizes spiritual growth and maturity in the body of Christ individually and corporately. And I want us to see that Paul's heart for ministry here becomes an example for us of how we should minister to one another as well. And the elements that should be, that should be an intricate part of our own ministries, individually and corporately. And if you are a believer this morning, beloved, listen to me. You have a ministry to carry out. You are in full-time ministry, whether you realize it or not. You are called to love and to serve Christ, and this is tangibly expressed in the way that we serve one another in the church. And so Paul's words here in Colossians 1, 28 through 29 are very instructive and pertinent for us. Paul pinpoints four elements of faithful God-glorifying ministry. And the first one is this. 
I want you to see in verse 28 that faithful, God-glorifying ministry is first and foremost focused on Christ. Faithful, God-glorifying ministry is focused on Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 28. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Him. Now, in my English text, uh, the New American Standard, verses 28 through 29 are two separate sentences. However, verses 28 through 29 are really the tail end of one long sentence, which begins in verse 24, where Paul begins to speak about his own gospel ministry. And so in verse 27, Paul is elaborating on the nature of the message that he preaches. And he says, To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is this mystery, Paul? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now listen, that is a glorious, remarkable statement right there. That is new covenant language that the Apostle Paul is highlighting there. Paul reminds the Colossians that Christ dwells in them. This statement emphasizes the beautiful, unique, intimate relationship between God's people and Christ. Listen, no religion in the world can claim that their God dwells in each individual follower in this kind of intimate way. Only Christians can claim this. We have a beautiful, unique, intimate relationship with the living Christ. And because we have a love bond with the indwelling Spirit of Christ, beloved, we have hope of final glory. Amen? What a beautiful, beautiful truth that is. So verses 28 through 29 are still part of this long sentence that begins in 124. But now Paul is going to zero in on the heart of his proclamation in verses 28 through 29. Literally, verse 28 reads, Whom we ourselves proclaim. Or we proclaim Him, that is Christ. The Christ who dwells in you, according to the end of verse 27, Him we proclaim. The Christ in you, the hope of glory, Him we proclaim. Now, what is the significance of Paul saying this to the Colossians? We proclaim Christ. Why does he say this? That the Colossian believers not know what Paul and his partners proclaimed? Were they ignorant about the proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection? I don't think they were ignorant of Paul's message. The reason why Paul has to remind them of the focus of their message is because these Christians were allowing themselves to be diverted away from Christ. They were being influenced by a sort of syncretistic religious system, a blending of various heretical views, ways of thinking which threatened the pure gospel that Epaphras had delivered to them. And so Paul exposes this heretical teaching. Look with me in chapter 2 and verse 8 and what he says there. Chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to who? To Christ. So this syncretistic religious system is characterized by Paul as an empty, vain philosophical system based upon human tradition and worldly principles. Note, rather than according to Christ. In other words, this teaching was contrary to the gospel of Christ that they had received. 
And so they need to be reminded of the Christ that they're losing sight of. They were being robbed of their prize, of the sufficiency of Christ. And so in chapter 2, we glean some basic elements of this multicolored heresy here. For example, this false system emphasized a sort of rigid asceticism in which certain restrictions or limitations were being placed upon one another of a physical nature. Chapter 2, verse 16 says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or in regard to drink. In chapter 2, verse 20, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So whatever this rigid asceticism was, this abstinence from various foods, it lacked the power to overcome sin and to make them like Christ. Mark it. Another element of this heresy was a sort of ritualism. Again, in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things of, of which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There was also an element of weird mysticism or vain speculation. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. See, these believers were being taken as prisoners by this false teaching and were being robbed of their prize, of the all-sufficient preeminent Christ. So it's not just that Paul is reminding them here of what he preaches. He is reminding them that it is all about Christ. That anything else, beloved, listen to me, is counterfeit religion which will not lead to acceptance before God or Christ-likeness in the believer's life. This is Paul's emphasis throughout the letter. Look at Christ. Don't look to counterfeits to become more and more like Jesus. In Him, you are complete. Listen, there are people all over the world trying to find acceptance or completeness before their deity or before other people by pursuing counterfeit religion. Do you realize that? I remember visiting one of the largest Catholic churches in Mexico City. And I was deeply saddened by the sight of people on their hands and on their knees going up the stairs, knees and hands all bloodied, sweating with tears and sweat in their fi- running down their faces. That's counterfeit religion. That's rigid asceticism and ritualism. And it accomplished no favor before God Almighty, does it? It's sad. I remember visiting a, a huge Buddhist temple in Yangon, Myanmar. And I was deeply saddened by the, by the couples praying to the fertility Buddhas so that they might be, might be able to have children. And thus they could be accepted by their fellow Buddhists and somehow feel complete and worthy and whole. And we preach Christ to them. We say, you don't need to pray, pray to Buddha. 
You can find completeness in Christ. Look at what God has done in and through His Son. There is hope for you beyond this. These are counterfeit philosophies and religions that exist all over the world. None of these are emphasizing the one true God or His all-sufficient Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. None of them are. We proclaim Christ, says Paul. Not the latest ism or other things. We proclaim a living, resurrected, ascended, exalted Christ. That's who we proclaim. How easy it is, beloved, to emphasize so many things in the church and not necessarily emphasize and exalt Christ. Not focus upon Him. We may not be succumbing to heresy in the church, but listen, we do fall prey to emphasizing some things that may be, they fall under legalism or asceticism or vain rituals. What kinds of things might we emphasize in our church? We may emphasize appearance. How people need to look or personal fitness. How people should be consumed with themselves so that they might look good. We emphasize appearance, be it in our conversation or in how much time we spend on personal fitness as opposed to serving the Lord. We might emphasize things like dieting or a type of food that we should be eating. There are debates going on about organic food versus non-organic. Which side, of the, the, which side are you on? Are you for organic food or non-organic food? Now, are those things wrong in and of themselves? They're not. But if we are focusing and bent on those things, and that's all that ever comes out of your mouth, and that's all you ever spend time doing, beloved, you need to reshift your focus to the right place. Amen? What other things may we emphasize? We might emphasize public school over homeschool or homeschool over public school as the only godly biblical way to educate our children. And we look down on people who don't choose the same form of education that we choose. We might emphasize a certain type of dress or style that presumably shows that we are mature or that we fit in. Or what about this one? We might emphasize things like cleanliness is next to godliness. In fact, some people don't even have others over their house because they're so insecure about how their house looks. Listen to me. Many of these things we fall prey to and champion as hills to die on. As if these things in and of themselves were indicative of Christian maturity. Or things that make us acceptable before God and others. Beloved, listen to me. Many of us are defined by these things rather than of proclaiming Christ. And we impose these things on others. Otherwise, they can't be on the in crowd with us. Listen, if we are known for something, may we be known for pointing people to Christ. And yes... Listen, it may very well be that as you focus upon Christ, this focused upon Him will have direct implications for the choices that you make in some of these areas of your life. How you eat, or the way you dress, or the type of education that you choose, how you keep your home and family, etc. But mark it. Christ does not equal fitness or healthy eating or homeschooling or public schooling, a particular appearance or way of dress, how clean your house is before you invite other people over to commune with them. 
We need to be careful, beloved, with unhealthy bents in the Christian life. That we not be legalistic and impose unbiblical substandards on one another. If you are going to be bent, have a bent in your Christian life, let it be this. Let it be that Christ would be exalted to the glory of the Father in everything that you do. Amen? And that we diligently pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let that define you. Exalting Christ and pursuing diligent, passionate, Christ-dependent, by His Spirit, holiness. Let that define you. I have had Christian friends who no matter what the topic of conversation was, we always found ourselves talking about their hobby horse. All the time. Well, I want to ask you this morning, what are you known for? What are you known for? What do you champion? When people talk about you or refer to you, what do they say that you are about? A system? A way of appearance? A way of dress? A way of eating a form of education over another? Or when people think about you, they talk about how much you love the Lord Jesus. How passionate you are for Him. How much you want to serve Him. How dedicated you are to Him. How sold out you are for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to make Him known by all means. Is that what people talk about when they talk about you? Paul says to the Colossians who are dangerously emphasizing other things, we proclaim Christ. The Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim a person. Paul directs their hearts and thoughts to an elevated view of Christ. He shows them Christ. He shows them that Christ is the all-sufficient, preeminent one who alone can save, alone can sanctify, comfort, and make you whole. Beloved, don't look to self-made religion. Self-improvement. Don't succumb to legalistic measures and rules in order to be accepted before God and other people. Christ is all-sufficient. And let His Word guide you. And what is truly biblical and not preferential. Amen? He says in chapter 2 verse 10, In Him, in Christ, you have been made complete. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. So Paul's aim is first and foremost to refocus their attention on Christ. To recalibrate their minds to the lover of their souls. And we too, beloved, must be focused on Christ and point people to Christ if we are to do faithful, God-glorifying ministry. Secondly, I want you to see that focusing on Christ finds expression very visibly and tangibly in our personal interaction with one another. And so the second element of faithful, God-glorifying ministry is this. It is ministry that is discipleship-oriented. Discipleship-oriented. Notice verse 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom. Note that both words here, admonishing and teaching, are modifying what it means to proclaim Christ. And in this context, both words are directed at believers. Paul's focus here is on Christian maturity, not primarily on speaking for the purpose of leading people to Christ. It's not evangelistic in its focus. It's edificational for the purpose of maturing people. The first word, admonishing, literally means to put or place in the mind. The word admonishing signifies warning or cautioning of a wandering Christian who has strayed from the path that honors the Lord. Admonishment is corrective in nature. 
Admonishment has to do with confronting sin or a wrong way of thinking with a view to warning a particular person, a believer, of impending consequences if that person continues on a sinful path. Paul uses nutheteo, this word admonishing, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where Paul writes that believers are to admonish the unruly. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, amidst Paul saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he, re- he tells them that for a period of three years in his ministry with them, he did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So admonishment has to do with warning or cautioning people. Teaching is from a word that really has to do with positive instruction. Teaching has to do with the impartation or communication of truth or Christian doctrine. Most often in Scripture, this teaching refers to the authoritative speaking of the Word of God, which centers on the proclamation of the gospel message. Teaching. Now, interestingly, the other place where Paul uses both words is in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, where he says this in 3.16, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing it with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So not only is Paul's ministry and that of his ministry partners a speaking one, a teaching one, one of admonishing, but in chapter 3, verse 16 of Colossians, he exhorts believers to be about teaching and admonishing one another. Listen, this is basic discipleship 101 right here, right? Basic discipleship 101. A discipleship orientation or discipleship mindset. This speaking of the Word of God is to be characteristic of our interaction with one another continually. Both positive instruction and warning or admonishment. In fact, you can say that if this speaking of the truth is not happening in your life, then we might say that growth is seriously stunted in your life, right? Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Crucial to Christian growth is the speaking forth of God's Word to one another, beloved. Crucial. In order that we might grow as we apply what has been taught to our lives diligently and be doers of the Word. Now notice... In verse 28, this ongoing, continuous speaking of the truth is to be done with all wisdom. With all wisdom. Now, why does Paul say, with all wisdom? And what does this admonishing and teaching every man, applying all wisdom, look like in the church? If speaking the truth in the form of admonishing and teaching one another is what is to characterize our interaction with one another, how do we flesh this out in our interaction with one another with all wisdom? How do we do that? And I want you to turn to a couple of examples. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to show you this. I want to show you just a couple of examples of how biblical authors teach and admonish regularly in their letters. And always with reference to what God has done in and through Christ. And therefore, in light of what God has done in and through Christ, there are implications for our conduct and our attitudes that are very practical. 
but always with reference to the gospel. Always with reference to what God has done in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they use great wisdom in their teaching and admonishing. They understand the historical situation of their readers, and they teach and admonish, but always with reference to what God has done in Christ as the motivation and the ground and the basis for their obedience. I want you to see this. Paul, in the first three chapters, this is a classic example. In the first three chapters, is talking about God's great work of redemption in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glory. And then in chapter 3, verse 20, look there. He praises God in light of God's great work of redemption to the praise of His glory in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, now to Him, that is God, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church in Christ, and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul praises God because of His great redemptive work in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glory in the redemption of sinners. And now, chapters 4 through 6, building on that ground and that basis of what God has done in and through His Son for His glory, now He's going to talk to us and exhort us about how we ought to be conducting ourselves. And in verses 1 through 16, he really focuses on a worthy walk that expresses itself in preserving unity. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, in light of the first three chapters, in light of everything that God Almighty has done, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What kinds of attitudes shall we be displaying? with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And then verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then notice the basis of this preserving of unity in the Spirit that we should strive for in verses 4 through 6. There is one body, literally, there's no there is in the English. It's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. We preserve oneness because Christ has established oneness already. Amen? In fact, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul speaks of Christ who is the ultimate peacemaker who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, the greatest, the greatest obstacle wall that ever existed between Jews and Gentiles, Christ abolished it. So that now believing Jews and believing Gentiles are part of this one new entity called the church. Amen? Christ established this peace. So Paul's exhortation in verse 3 to us is this, you be diligent to preserve it, not create it. You preserve it. Why don't we create it? Because Christ already did it. See? If you're struggling with walking in unity, beloved, this morning, in any aspect of your life with other believers, you need to be reminded of God's amazing work in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glory. And the indestructible unity that He established for you and I. See? We're in this triangular, beautiful relationship with Christ at the top. And one of us on one side and others on the other side. We have this wonderful union with one another. And we are called to preserve that union. 
So Paul teaches and admonishes us to walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. First of all, expressed in this walk in unity, but it's grounded upon and based upon the, the unity that Christ has already established, you see? What about if you're struggling with worldliness? If this morning you're struggling with walking in accordance with worldly thinking or worldly, a worldly lifestyle and you're a professing believer, what is, how does Paul teach and admonish the Ephesian believers? Well, in chapter 4, verses 17 and following, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. That was your former manner of lifestyle. Walking in futile thinking, being darkened in your understanding. Don't be walking in accordance with worldliness anymore. Why? Verses 20 and 21. Because you have had a collision with Christ. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus... What is he saying? You know Christ. You've been taught differently. Don't walk in accordance with the world anymore. You are a new person. Walk and conduct yourself in accordance with your position. Practice who you are in position. Live out who you are. See? So, verses 22 and following. Make sure that you are no longer speaking falsehood. In deception, verse 25. Instead, speak truth. One of you with his neighbor, each one of you. Why? Because you know the truth who is Jesus, right? You've met him. Be angry and do not sin, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. He who steals, verse 28, must steal no longer. Rather, let him be diligent in labor and work so that he could share. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but words that are edificational according to the need of the moment, imparting grace to people. See, that is the new man kind of lifestyle. And the reason why we're able to live that kind of life is because we have met Christ, verses 20 and 21, right? We have been taught and discipled by our Lord Jesus Christ to live that way. Now, what about if you're having interpersonal conflict this morning with different people? What is Paul, how does Paul teach and admonish with reference to Christ and what God has done in and through Christ If you are struggling with bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger and slander and all kinds of malice, verse 31, he says, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. And here it is, brings it back to Christ, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, the impetus and the motivation for tenderness and kind heartedness and a forgiving kind of spirit is when we start gazing upon what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. Amen? Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. If you are a child of God, imitate your Father and walk in love. Verse 2. Here it is again. Just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What motivates love, authentic, genuine love, that lays down its life for other people. It is the love that Christ has displayed toward you and I, beloved. What motivates compassion and mercy and tenderheartedness and, 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 a, and a giving spirit toward other people? It is what God has done in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, for you. See? Paul is teaching and admonishing them about the practical implications for their life, holy living, but it is with reference to what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What about wives and husbands? Are you having a hard time in your marriage right now? Paul doesn't just come in in chapter 5, verse 22 and say, Wife, submit. Come on. Get it done. Do it or else. Verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And I know a few ladies, by the way, that they were transformed and greatly impacted by this next little phrase right here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. See? Why? Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife. This is in accordance with God's beautiful design. As Christ also is the head of the church. Here he is connecting the wife's submission now to the the picture of Christ and his church. As Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so the, the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. See? Admonishing and teaching with reference to Christ. Husbands, you're not getting off the hook. Love your wives. But I can't. I can't love my wife. You don't even know my wife. You have no idea the type of woman I'm living with in the house. Maybe I don't. But I can tell you what Paul says here. He says, husbands, verse 25, love your wives. Why? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What amazing love that is. Amen? And that becomes the motivation. God's love for you, beloved husband, displayed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down His life for you, becomes the motivation for you to lay down your life for your wife. Whether she is making it happen for you in whatever area of your marriage or not, the responsibility is still there. Paul teaching and admonishing wives and husbands with reference to Christ over and over again. And he's not the only one that does that. We're not going to have time to go to 1 Peter right now. But I just want you to think about that, that letter. How Peter teaches and admonishes those particular believers who were going through trials and suffering for doing what is right, persecution in the, in, the, in the Christian life. What should our perspective be when experiencing trials and sufferings as those believers were in Peter's day? How are we taught and admonished by Peter with reference to Christ amidst our suffering? Well, in chapter 2, verses 9 and following, Peter starts to exhort them about the fact that they are a chosen people, a holy people. They are a privileged, blessed people. And in light of that, the fact that they are a privileged, blessed people, he says in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, you need to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Live in accordance with holiness so that you might give glory to God because you have been saved. You are a chosen people set apart for his purposes so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, Paul says, Walk in holiness. And then, in chapter 2 there in in 1 Peter, he starts talking about walking in loving submission. How even despite the fact that that government is persecuting them and treating them unjustly, they are to, to honor the king, fear God, to live in loving submission under that government. But the reason why they are to walk in holiness and loving submission is given in chapter 2 and verse 21. 
It is because of the fact that Christ also has suffered. He has set the ultimate example of humble submission amidst unjust suffering and abuse. Christ in 1 Peter is the pattern and the example for us amidst our suffering to pursue holiness, to pursue loving submission. Why? Because Jesus has set the pattern. And part of following Christ and being a disciple of Christ is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Christ. Right? And Philippians chapter 1 says, For to you this grace has been given, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering is a grace of God. I, wow, that hurts, doesn't it? Peter instructs and admonishes them to live well under their suffering because of the pattern and the example that Christ has already set. Go back to the book of Colossians. Paul does the same thing in the book of Colossians as we already began to see in the introduction. Paul teaches and admonishes the Colossians with reference to Christ in addressing the Colossian heresy. In chapter 1, he elevates their view of Christ. We saw that. In chapter 2, he exposes the heresy and keeps revealing to them how Christ is better. They don't need to look to counterfeits. Christ can complete them. And then look at Colossians chapter 3. And this teaching and admonishing with reference to Christ, showing them the implications of His person and work for their living. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Keep thinking about those things that are heavenly, because that's where Christ is. Keep seeking Him. Keep seeking the exalted Christ. Set your mind on those things above. Verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion, evil desire, and so forth and so forth. Look at verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You see that? Teaching and admonishing with reference to Christ and what He has done and how it has practical implications for your life, pointing them to Christ. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Amazing. Amazing how He instructs and He continues to point them to Christ. Over and over again. And listen, beloved, this is my point in going to other passages to illustrate what this admonishing and teaching looks like. The biblical authors understood the situation of their readers. They taught them and admonished them with all wisdom, but always reminding them that their obedience was to be grounded in God's work in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And they modeled for us, in that sense, how to disciple one another, right? Having this discipleship orientation being discipleship-oriented as we minister with one another. This highlights the importance of a ministry that is discipleship-oriented, life-on-life discipleship. See, many of us have it all wrong. 
I had one brother before tell me something along these lines. Listen, Kempis, I'm not very relational. I'm just not a relational guy. My job is just to tell them how it is. I know a lot about the Bible, so I just tell them what to do and give them chapter and verse, and that should suffice, shouldn't it? And I said, dude, no, it doesn't suffice. That is not your only job. Your job is to pursue a loving, authentic relationship with your brother or for you ladies, your sister in the Lord, and in the flow of that relationship, spur one another to love and good deeds by speaking the truth in love to them, admonishing and teaching one another. And that takes great wisdom as we get to know one another and we understand what is going on in life. And as we learn to care for one another, we will be better equipped to skillfully, carefully, biblically, and in a Christ-centered manner, address the issues in someone's life, right? By bringing the Word of God to bear upon the person's situation for the glory of our Almighty God. So this way of ministry is none other than a discipleship-oriented ministry. And we have a great model in these wonderful letters. They're discipleship letters. We all need to have those discipleship relationships, beloved. I ask you, who is speaking the truth into your life right now? No one in this room is self-sufficient. Every person needs to be taught. Every person needs admonishment. If you are a believer, every person needs to be taught and admonished and warned. This interaction, this life-on-life discipleship whereby we are speaking the truth into one, another, to one another's lives is like bathing. We need it constantly, right? Consistently. Some of us more than others, no offense, right? But we need this consistently. Who is building into you and who are you invested into? So faithful, God-glorifying ministry is focused on Christ. It is discipleship-oriented. And I want you to see that faithful, God-glorifying ministry, thirdly, has Christ-likeness as its goal. Has Christ-likeness as its goal. Look at verse 28. And this is in, pertaining, pertains to our ministry to one another. We are looking to affect others so that they might become more and more like Christ and be instruments in the hands of God to do that. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. And here is the purpose, so that we may present Every man complete in Christ. We don't just build relationships simply to hang out or shoot the breeze. Mark it. We don't invest into other people simply so that they become our pet projects or run our errands for us. We are about to be about, about discipleship oriented, not for the purpose of what you and I get out of it. Not for selfish purposes. The goal of our proclamation which finds expression in continual admonishing and teaching one another with all wisdom in the context of biblical relationships is so that we become like who? Like Christ. So that Christ is formed in each one of us. This is the greatest good that we want to see in each and every person, right? I remember one mentor once telling me, Kempis, true love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. And so if you truly love someone, then you will want what is ultimately best for them. That's very applicational for us and into our ministries, right? And our service with other people. If we truly love our brethren, then the ultimate good that we want for them is that they become like Jesus. Sometimes this means saying the hard things in order to direct them back to what is best and most beneficial for them. Sometimes it means reminding them that the highest goal of the Christian life is not personal happiness as they define it, but Christ-likeness. Conformity to the image of our Lord. 
See, Paul presupposes here that we're all incomplete, we're all unstable, we're all broken people in need of daily repair, and so our goal should be that every man or woman be made complete. The word complete here can be translated mature or perfect. It does have an ultimate end-time focus. One day when each one of us stands before Christ, we will be made perfect in His perfect image. But until that time, beloved, we're in a continual state of growing and maturing And yet we have the privilege of being instruments of change in other people's lives, right? This is the goal of ministry for each and every one of us. That we would become like Christ and that we would be impacting others so that God works in and through them to conform them into the image of His Son in everything that we do. Now, I want you to notice three things here. Three primary observations that I want us to note at this point. First of all, it is this. Notice that if people being conformed to Christ is our goal in Christian ministry, then ministry on this side of glory is never ending, is it? It's never ending. Why? Because we won't be made perfectly holy until we see Christ someday, right? So our labor is never ending here on earth. There is no such thing as retirement. Our work is not done until the Lord takes us home. There is no room for passivity or lethargy in the Christian life. We are continually in ministry. Ministry may take shape differently depending on the season of your life and where you're at, but we are on duty as ministers of Christ until Jesus returns. Note it. As one person told me a few years ago, when I was whining and complaining about how busy I was, he said, Kempis, suck it up. Work now, rest later forever when you die. (laughs) See, if presenting every man complete in Christ is the goal of ministry, then ministry is a lifetime endeavor, beloved. Lifetime. Secondly, notice that if the goal of ministry is Christ-likeness, then there is no room for partiality or favoritism. If we are to minister in the church in a faithful, God-glorifying way, note what Paul says in verse 28. He speaks of comprehensive shepherding care. He repeats the word every three different times. He says in verse 28, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul's point is we are concerned with every person we come across. No one is less important. No one. Listen, in our church, we should strive so that no one is left out and stagnant in their Christian growth, right? That no one would be left out. Our problem is that many of us like to latch on to those whom we have known for a long time. We're very cliquish. To those with whom we feel comfortable hanging around, those who who like us or who do things the way that we do them, who are wired like we are, as we say. Beloved, this should not be the case as a pattern of your life. If you know of people who are not plugged into the life of this church, you should reach out to them, regardless of whether you know them well or not. Regardless of whether they look like you or they don't, if they're Christians, engage them in life-on-life discipleship. If they're non-Christians, engage them with the gospel of Christ so that they would come to know God by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? We need to have go-getter kind of mentality. Faithful, God-glorifying ministry leaves no room for partiality or favoritism. We are about comprehensive care and shepherding, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. If we have Christ-likeness as our goal, then we remember 
that we are here to benefit every person in the church and favoritism and partiality should never exist among us. Amen? Never, ever, ever. Thirdly, notice that if the goal of ministry is Christ-likeness, then you and I must remember that ministry is about people. People. Notice that Paul in verse 28 doesn't say so that we might present every program complete in Christ. So that we may present every structure complete in Christ. So that we may present every ministry complete in Christ. So that we may present every building complete in Christ. He says, so that we may present every man or woman complete in Christ. That's what he says. Ministry is about people. Ministry is about growing people for the glory of God. Even if our building, heaven forbid, should burn down. And our program ceased, beloved. You and I could still minister to one another, meet people's needs, serve people, love one another in very practical ways, right? Amen? We could still do it. Listen, I have been in foreign countries where buildings and programs and structures and ministry kinks were largely absent. And yet, vibrant, God-glorifying ministry was still at work. Places Places in Asia where there were only underground churches meeting. With no freedom for these Christians. They don't have programs or buildings or structures. And yet Christians gather to hear the word. To fellowship together. And they love and they care for one another. With the goal of becoming like Christ. To the glory of God the Father. See? We can still minister to one another. I want to ask you this morning. Are you a person who desires more than anything else. As it pertains to your beloved brothers and sisters. Are you a person who is ministry minded? That you are constantly looking for opportunities to use your gifts for the purpose of building into your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Are you a ministry-minded person? Are people a burden to you? Or do you count it a privilege to serve Christ by serving His people? Do you find great joy and satisfaction in glorifying God by seeing His people become more and more like Jesus, your precious Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that the joy of your life as it pertains to other brothers and sisters in Christ? I want to challenge us with that. See, proud people are not ministry-minded people, are they? Proud people are focused on themselves. Proud people are preoccupied with their own comforts, their own wants, and their own needs rather than the needs of others. Proud people are not ministry-minded people. Let's ask God for a greater fervent love for one another, beloved. Because if we fervently love the brethren, then we will work hard for what is ultimately best for the brethren. Amen? And that is that we would all become like Christ. Now you say, Kempis, whoo, man. Faithful, God-glorifying ministry, that's overwhelming. I mean, focusing on Christ, being discipleship-oriented as we are continually building relationships so that we speak the truth to one another, applying all wisdom with the goal of people becoming like Christ. Uh, I mean, this will demand my time and my resources and my energy, my everything. There's no way I can do this on my own. And I would say, preach it. Amen. You can't do it on your own, right? You can't. So I want to encourage you with the fourth element of faithful God-glorifying ministry. And it is this, beloved. Faithful God-glorifying ministry is dependent on Christ's power. Dependent on Christ's power. We proclaim Him 
admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29, for this purpose, the purpose he just stated that everyone would be complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Notice Paul's commitment first and foremost to Christ-centered growth. He says he labors. He uses a word that, that is a general word for ministry work. But then he intensifies his ministry work by adding the modifying word striving or fighting or struggling, agonizomai, which was used for competing in an athletic event. It signified the struggle and the, the fighting, the utmost effort required of an athlete training or competing in athletic events. Paul labors, striving for the purpose of serving Christ by seeing Christ formed in, in, his, in the people. That they would become like Christ. He wasn't passive about his Christian service. Because he loves Christ and he loves Christ's people, he gave maximum effort this man. But far from relying upon his own strength, Paul looks to the one who commissioned him to the work of ministry, and that is who? Christ himself, right? Christ himself. Literally, verse 29 says, according to his, that is Christ's, according to his energy, which is working in me in power. It is by Christ's enabling power that Paul ministers. This is a man who understood the tension between personal human responsibility in the Christian life and ministry, and yet God's enabling power working in and through him. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 to the Philippian believers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is the maximum human effort that you need to give. But he says right after that, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See? In Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do all things. That's pretty arrogant, Paul. You can do all things, but it doesn't end there. Through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we see here, Paul reminding the Colossians and us that both stretching effort and dependence upon the Lord, beloved, are necessary if we're going to be faithful and glorify God in our ministries. And I want to remind you and I that Christ will and can empower you by His Spirit for faithful God-glorifying ministry. Amen? He can do that. See, our excuse is not that God has left us with no empowerment or ability. Frankly, the problem is that many of us are just flat-out spiritually lazy in ministry. Flat-out spiritually lazy. Now, there may be periods of time or seasons, as I said before, where you will need to step back from organized ministry, but you never, ever, ever cease to minister if you are serving Christ and are about serving and loving His people here on earth. You never cease to do that. So where is the lack of sacrifice coming from in our body? Where is that coming from? See, we have created in our churches a culture of spiritual wimpiness and spiritual lethargy. Right? The sad reality is that in many of our churches, it's not no longer 20% doing all the work. Now we're down to like 10% or even below that of people doing most or all of the work. And we use all these types of excuses. I have a full-time job. I am too busy to get involved. I'm too busy with many other extracurricular activities to be involved in people's lives. Or, hey, if people are already doing the work, then what do I have left to do? All kinds of excuses I've heard. What are we busy doing? 
Is it really the question that we need to ask ourselves, beloved? What are we busy doing? Are we busy doing the Lord's work or what our pleasures dictate? Which one is it? I want you to listen to me, brother or sister, professing believer on the sidelines, to what 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says. As each one, each believer, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To those of you who are disobedient and are just flat out not serving in any capacity, caring for nobody's needs, caring for nobody in your life, who are professing Christ, I want to remind you that you have received a package, if you are a believer, of spiritual gifts from God Almighty. Oh, these don't belong to you for selfish purposes. They are part of your stewardship. And you are directly accountable to God for how you use them. That you not hide them so that they benefit no one. God has given them to you, beloved, listen, so that you might glorify Him by using them and your fellow brethren becoming more and more like Christ. That's why. So what I'm saying to you, in short, is get off the sidelines. Get off the bench if you are a lover and follower of Christ. If you truly are, listen to me. If the pattern of your life that you are living is for yourself and serving no one, and that is characteristic of your life for years and years and years, it may very well be that Christ is not in you. And you have some serious self-examination to do. If life is all about you, all about serving personal selfish interests, because the call to discipleship, the call of the gospel is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Christ. Amen? The call of the gospel is to lay down your life, because Christ laid down His life for you. And a great, the greatest expression of you laying down your life for your Lord is laying down your life for your brethren. Now, to those of you who are faithful, who like Paul are laboring and striving to love and to serve Christ, and there are many of you in here like that, I want to comfort you with the wonderful truth that Christ is your strength. Amen? He is your strength. He's sufficient for you to continue doing faithful, God-glorifying ministry. The living Christ, the hope of glory, who lives in you by His Spirit, is more than able to sustain you and empower you for the task at hand. Remember that the one in you is the dynamite driving you by His Spirit. He is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you are tired and weary, where do you find strength? In Christ. If you are on the sidelines, what should give you motivation to get off the sidelines? Christ will empower you, right? Christ will enable you. You know what motivates me most in ministry? First of all, to know that in some small way I can please the one who has blessed me with every spiritual blessing and has sent his son Jesus into the world to lay down his life for me. If in some way, shape, or form I can serve him in some capacity by serving his people, oh, how that feeds my soul. And the second thing is the blessing of seeing people's lives changed. People's attitudes change toward God and them loving the Lord 
and saying no to sin and denying themselves and pursuing holiness. That is so enriching. The more Paul saw lives change, the more he labored, it fed him to see people become like Jesus to the glory of Christ. Amen? Beloved, this is basic ABC Christian ministry. Faithful, God-glorifying ministry focuses on Christ, is discipleship-oriented, whereby we are building sanctifying relationships, speaking the truth and love to one another, pointing one another to Christ and to become like Christ. That is the goal, that we would become like Jesus to the glory of God. And it is ministry dependent on the power and the strength which Christ by His Spirit supplies. May God help us to be people that are ministering faithfully and for His glory. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we want to be people who are faithful, who bring You glory and honor and praise. Help us to keep Christ as the focal point of all that we do, Lord. To be discipleship-oriented, Father, engaging one another with the truth of Your Word for the purpose of becoming like Christ. And to do it all by the strength that you supply by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.